Good morning. Well, I don't know how many of you use the expression taking your lumps, but um, I uh, actually use the expression quite a bit. And um, it started um, back in the 1930s. There were sports writers for boxing matches. Uh, it makes sense, right? The metaphor makes sense that uh, somebody that was actually getting a, a good beating in a match uh, but endured and had the resolve to win the match took his lumps, right? Now you hear politicians use it when they're being slandered against or, um, or something of that nature. And I actually was using it uh, a couple of months ago uh, quite frequently when my wife got sick. Um, you see, she uh, came down with a flu, and at the beginning I just said to myself, you know, as I was doing the laundry, all the th- uh, numerous things that my wife does administratively, I was trying to juggle all the balls all at once, and I was saying to myself, you know, I just got to take my lumps, just got to take my lumps. But uh, eventually, um, she came, uh, her sickness turned into pneumonia, and the days turned into weeks, and it was a little bit harder to say it. Just got to take my lumps, just got to take my lumps. And then, I want to transport you all with me at 3.30 in the morning, as I was pacing back and forth in our apartment complex with a 14-month-old shrieking in my ear, and it had been for a couple hours. And um, about 3.30 in the morning... And then I heard a four-year-old. Now, Julie's in bed with pneumonia. She can barely move. And then our four-year-old cries out. I put down the shrieking baby. I go and I feel, feel the forehead of our four-year-old. Fever. He's sick, too. And uh, the other one starts to wake up. Uh, we have three boys under the age of four, so the second four-year-old is uh, crying as well. And then our neighbor takes a, a broom and starts hitting the floor underneath me and saying, you Americans just need to go home. Yeah, so I stopped saying, I just got to take my lumps. And at that point, I felt myself, honestly, sliding into despair. My wife's sick. I'm here, Lord, trying to introduce people to Jesus, live life on mission, and months of sickness and just grinding it out and trying to take my lumps? Where is this coming from? You know, oftentimes um, I get to see a number of churches. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And when a church really starts getting its act together, it's interesting introducing people to Jesus and being missional in their, um, in their activities. Often, right when they're getting their act together, the bottom drops out. Or a bomb drops, metaphorically. What do you do to maintain your resolve when you get that call and you have to have that staff meeting or that family decides they're going to get a divorce? How do we take our lumps, keep taking our lumps, and maintain our passion not, and not slide away into despair? Um, even happens within, uh, within families that I, I'm thinking of an instance where we were just kind of getting our act together in, as a church, uh, as a local community in Spain. And one of the families that had come to Christ and was being involved in introducing other people to Jesus, the man came to church and said, you know what, I, I've left the faith, I'm going to divorce my wife. And he walked out and he never came back. How do you maintain your resolve when the bomb drops, Right? We're going to look at a story that actually addresses that question. It's the whole story of the Gospel of Mark, but we're going to focus in on one aspect, when the bomb drops. See, the Gospel of Mark is about 
and an, a, a God who is intentional to draw others to himself, and people on mission. The very first individual in the story of the Gospel of Mark, you know who it is? John the Baptist. He comes in Mark chapter 1, verse 2, and he's something of a missionary rock star, right? Sent from God to prepare the way for Jesus, and he's faithful. In chapter 1, verse 4, the multitudes are flocking to hear John the Baptist. They're repenting of their sins, they're confessing their sins, and he prepares the way for Jesus. He's faithful to his mission. The trajectory of the story keeps going up with Jesus, right? He's the protagonist, he's the Son of God, and he's sent by the Father with the commission to proclaim the good news of the arrival of the kingdom of God and bring the kingdom. And then chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, what do we see? He's defeating demons. He's healing the multitudes. He's winning over um, many people. Peoples are flocking to him. Where's Satan? He's off somewhere cowering in the corner, licking his wounds. The trajectory is up, 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 up. And then Jesus sends another group of disciples in chapter 6, verses 7 to 13. So you've got John the Baptist sent, Jesus sent or commissioned by the Father. The disciples are sent. Everything is looking up. And then we read chapter 6, verse 14. So if you take a look at, at Mark chapter 6, verse 14, how do we keep our resolve when everything is looking up in mission? King Herod, I'm reading in uh, the NIV, which is in your pew Bible, which is your pew, pew Bible. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that, that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he's Elijah, and still others claimed he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. When Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. So if you're tracking along with the story, it's all an upward trajectory, and then all of a sudden the bottom drops out on us. Why? John the Baptist, the first one sent, is dead. We learn that in verse 14. We're transported into Herod's quarters and we overhear his musings about who is Jesus. And John's dead. And then in verse 16 we learn he's not just dead, but he's died. How? He's been beheaded. I don't know about you, but that transports me back to 2014 when we were seeing the news about ISIS and some of the horrific things that they were doing to innocent uh, tourists and victims. This, is, this makes you sick to your stomach. Now remember, for the remnant of Israel at this time, this was their Billy Graham, John the Baptist. Beheaded? Are you kidding me? I thought it was all up, 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 trajectory on mission. How do we square mission with, with our hero being beheaded? So we read on and, and look for an answer to the theological question, how do we maintain our resolve for mission when the bottom drops out. Maybe in the details of the story, the Holy Spirit will guide us in an answer to that question. So let's read on. I'm going to read 17 to, verse 17 to 29. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had bound him and put him in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him. 
knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked listening to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I'll give it to you, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried home, hurried in to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is really a powerful story with a lot of um, details of the vile, disgusting nature of his death, right? But I want us to think about the way that this story is presented, knowing the context that we've just described of an upward trajectory of people living life on mission and God powerfully working. I want us to think about it a little bit like CSI, um, the episodes of CSI. Have you ever seen these? They're crime scene investigators. Um, okay, so it's a television program where, there's a, where, where someone dies, right? I see a lot of head shaking. So... Um, Someone dies at the beginning of the episode, and we maybe even as the viewer watch it happen. It's a crime. And then CSI, the crime scene investigators, come in, and they have um, all these tools at their um, fingertips to try and catch the bad guy. So they run an autopsy. They look under every crack and crevice in order to answer the question, who's the guilty party? This passage, in the way that it's set up, we see a crime. We have to live and feel the revulsion, uh, feel the crime. And we're a little bit like crime scene, theological crime scene investigators answering a question now. How do we deal with this after all we've seen in life on mission? So think of yourself as a crime scene investigator, theological crime scene investigator. And the first thing you note probably is in verse 18, John the Baptist is bold, right? He, he speaks against a political leader who's caught in an illicit affair. Can you imagine how polarizing that would be today for a pastor to speak out against the illicit affair of a political leader? Well, it gets him thrown in prison. He's thrown in a dark dungeon. And then we're introduced to the suspects. Herod, a key suspect, right? But then we learn in verse 19, there's, even, there's a, a crucial sub- suspect, and it's the woman in this illicit affair, Herodias. She wants blood. She wants vengeance. We continue on in verse 21 and note another thing in the, in the passage. The narrator says the opportune time came. Did you see that when I read through it the first time? The opportune time? Who is this an opportune time for? For whom? For John the Baptist? No. For Jesus? The disciples on, minist- in, on mission? Now, I think the opportune time in this context is for Herodias. Why? Why do we know that? 
because of the way the rest of the story unfolds, I think she knew a little something about Herod. That she was probably, this is the way I interpret the story. I think she saw an opportune time when the party came because she knew a couple of things about her illegitimate lover. She knew he had two weaknesses, women and alcoholic beverages. So he throws a party. He has alcohol there. He's probably a little... He's probably a little inebriated. And then she sends her daughter, probably to dance in an inappropriate way. And this guy is just enough of a fool that he'll probably do something rash, right? What does he do? He promises her in verse 24 up to half of his kingdom. The opportune time has come. The girl comes back to her mother, the head of John the Baptist, we have to follow as the story slows down. I mean, it really does. It slows down, and we follow with this girl in front of the inebriated so-called king, and she requests the head of John the Baptist on a platter. She throws in that little detail by herself, tells you a little bit about her character, on a platter. And then we have to follow the executioner, the head of John the Baptist, being delivered slowly, to the witch. Then the story ends with the disciples of John coming in. I mean, this is tragic, the way this story is set up and unfolds. And they don't even get to bury the whole body. It's the headless corpse of their John, of their Billy Graham. And that's the way the story ends. Theological crime scene investigators, it's a little bit curious, what are we supposed to take from this? First and foremost, we are forced to sit in and grapple with, when you live life on mission, you face the worst forms of human evil, and it hits at the most inappropriate times, right? The trajectory of our mission as a church is going up, 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 and then the bottom drops out. Human evil in its worst form, and we're forced to sit in it. We don't like sitting in evil, do we? And thinking about it, the reality of evil, even for a moment. I remember when my mom was diagnosed with cancer two years ago, and we came home off the field to spend the first month of chemotherapy with my mom. And, you know, I thought it was fascinating re-entering into the American culture and remembering exactly how it is, but um, nurses and doctors, they were all so excited to use me as an excuse to avoid talking about cancer. Oh, you must be so thrilled, they say to my mom, that your son has come all the way from Spain to be with you. You must be thrilled. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I really just want to know what stage it is. And we would be really thrilled if she wasn't fighting this brutal disease. But you know, as Americans... Our cultural tendency is to sugarcoat, sidestep, dance around, not talk about hard things. But it's real, right? It's reality. Especially when you start living life intentionally on mission to introduce other people to Jesus. It was not a coincidence when that gentleman came to our church and told everyone that he was walking away from the faith. When we're getting our act together to be living life on mission. This story makes us feel the evil for a moment as the guillotine falls and as John's head is served. 
and to, to face the reality of life on mission is accompanied with suffering. You know what? We can even pull the curtain back and see Satan's silhouette in this story. Look with me at verse 17 and 27. First in verse 17, um, there's a word that's not translated in the NIV, but it's the word send. So um, it says in NIV, had given orders. Really the verb is sent for John the Baptist to be arrested. And then in verse 27, what does Herod do? He immediately sent an executioner. So first he sends his lackeys to go arrest John the Baptist. Then he sends his executioner to lop his head off. Send, send. Who is the only authoritative figure in the story that sent? God the Father sending John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus. The reader sees that verb. It's the only other time it's used up until now and thinks, oh my goodness, there's an alternative sending here. And what we're meant to see is to pull back the curtain, see Satan's silhouette. Herod is like a puppet on strings to a degree. And we're meant to see Satan. Part of the reason we, do, we also see Satan is that all the way along he's been in the story, right? Jesus is baptized. He's tempted by Satan. Then later, Jesus says in chapter 3, verse 27, my whole ministry can be summarized as this. I'm binding Satan. And now, Herod sends, and we're meant, I think, to see the strings leading back to the puppet master, Satan himself. Another way we see it in this story is the word king and kingdom. Have you seen that in the text? Over and over and over again, what is Herod called? What does he have? He's a king with a kingdom. We know that there's only one true king, and it's God. Because that's what Jesus has been preaching. And the kingdom is his. That's Jesus' message, right? In chapter 1, verse 15, the kingdom of God has arrived in me. Another way that the curtain is pulled back, even in the way that the story is told and said, hey, guess what? There's a puppet master Herod's too much of a fool to realize what he's doing, but Satan has intentions here. If you live life intentional on mission, Satan shows up. The bottom dropping out is not coincidental. It's not bad luck. There's a very real enemy. You know what? It is incredibly helpful. I know this seems weird, but it was incredibly helpful for me at 3.30 in the morning pacing back and forth and hearing the neighbor beating the, beating the floor. And I, in my flesh, I had a number of different things I wanted to respond with. But it is immensely helpful to know, hey, I'm living life intentionally for Jesus. This is real. This is satanic. This is not coincidental. It helps in a staff meeting when the bottom drops off and you have to look at each other and go, okay, what is going on? It really helps to look at each other and say, there's a deeper, there's a deeper force at work here and we can pray because we have a common enemy. It does. It'll help your marriage too. Oftentimes when you get into a crisis situation where I don't know what it, whatever it might be, drugs or um, um, discovery of uh, some kind of infidelity, it helps in those moments to not point and blame, well, you should have, well, you should know, together say, we have a common enemy and we need to pray over this. We need to pull the curtain back on what's really going on here.
Because if we get our act together as a couple and live life intentionally to introduce other people to Jesus, this makes sense. The story of the Gospel of Mark is never meant, uh, was never meant to be read, I believe, in little segments. So we read this story, and it's a part of a larger story, right, that's leading towards a climax. So John the Baptist foreshadows in his death someone, someone's death, really important, right? And the rest of the story, Jesus' death on the cross. It's foreshadowing that. Just as his proclamation ministry foreshadowed Jesus' proclamation, just as the disciples are going to face suffering, Jesus is going to the cross. We have to read the Gospel of Mark that way. How do we maintain our resolve when we're on life on mission? First, we acknowledge evil. The next thing we do is we look to the cross. Turn with me to chapter 8. You know, the next time John the Baptist is mentioned in the story, the disciples are before Jesus and they're saying, who do the people, Jesus says, who do the people say that I am? One of the speculations that people have about who Jesus is is John the Baptist, verse 28, right? In chapter 8. But then Jesus uses the opportunity, remembering John the Baptist's vile, grotesque death, to say, life on mission is accompanied with suffering. But, verse 34, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for, loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Why in the blazes would anybody want to live life intentionally on mission when, when there's the promise of this kind of deep suffering? The only way that we can do it is remembering that the cross gives us everything, gives us life, as this passage says. And how do we have life in Christ? We know that we have life in Christ because Mark chapter 10, 45, Jesus took the cross on his shoulders and went up the hill to die on our behalf, to ransom us, to, to serve as our ransom for sin. Son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The way we can think about that is you are a slave to sin in a cage and you can't get out. But Jesus' death pays the penalty or the price for your liberation. If you place your faith in Christ as your Savior, you are liberated. The cross gives us life. The cross emancipates us. It liberates us. This is where the rest of the trajectory of the story is going. This is what John the Baptist's death foreshadows. Verse 37 of chapter 15. When Jesus is death and he's ex exhaling for the last time, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. Now, what did that represent? That curtain temple, there's some debate about what's going on here, but I think it's the, the, the curtain temple between the holiest, the holy of holies and the most holy place. And what that represented at Jesus' death is access to God the Father. 
how in the world can we face this kind of suffering when we're living life intentionally on mission? Because Christ gives us life. He liberates us. He, he gives us access to God himself. It's really helpful. It was helpful for me at 3.30 in the morning, pacing back and forth, to think about, hey, I have a common enemy. And I'm not alone in this. And this isn't coincidental. But you know what? It was really helpful for me to say, the only reason I will continue and should continue is because Jesus gave me life. He emancipated me. He liberated me. I have access to you, God, right now. And ultimately, we're victorious. The ultimate victory is coming when Christ returns. But we are victorious. Satan's worst arm, worst, um, uh, I'm sorry, that was a Spanish translate, translation of, uh, uh, his worst weapon is the lie that we can't know God or that we can do it on our own without Christ. And when we come to Christ in faith and he saves us, his worst, his worst lie is defeated. So yeah, it was helpful to acknowledge that there's a spiritual battle and pull the curtain back on Satan, but it was really helpful to remember, Jesus, you gave me everything. <laughs> That's the only reason I can do this. It'll be the only thing in those moments that the staff will have when they're facing that crisis or that you as a family will have when you're facing a crisis. It will be the ultimate thing. We know God the Father through Christ his Son and are empowered by the Spirit to continue on. So we persevere in mission. How? By pulling back the curtain on Satan and lingering over the cross. Lingering over the cross, I like to think of it a little bit like looking at a Magic Eye poster. Do you remember this in the 1990s? This was like a total fad. I remember walking around the late 90s. Some of you will have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, in, in malls, when malls were popular back in the day. And uh, people were just standing and staring at these, these dotted pictures. Um, and I could never see the, the 3D photo thing. I, I, for, for a while, I couldn't see it. And then eventually I did. And I remember how magnificent it was. You're looking at a 2D picture, and then all of a sudden this 3D image opens up to you. You might be saying, you know what, Chad, I really don't see the benefits of the cross. I don't feel it with my heart. This is where um, I end and the Spirit has to intervene in your heart. But as you meditate and linger over the benefits that the cross offers, only the Spirit of God can open up the 3D picture to you. And I'll tell you, when you see the picture, it's magnificent. But I can't open your eyes to it. I'll just tell you, pray. And when God opens the 3D picture, it is magnificent. You see, life. I'm liberated. I have access to God. And that is the kind of image that will carry you through when suffering meets, when mission meets with suffering. Um, I'm uh, also a, um, a bit of a baseball fan, probably even bigger than Bill. Uh, he likes baseball, but his team's bad, right? And so, sorry, Bill. My team is actually doing pretty well. Um, so, so it's easier for me to talk about right now. 
But one of the things uh, that I like to do, a uh, geeky fan of baseball, is I like to look at the player profile that I'm particularly interested in and like, is he married? Does he have kids? Uh, what's his life like? Especially in the seasons where he's really doing well. So I remember reading about a, a baseball player and um, he had an amazing season, like MVP caliber, MVP caliber season. And I thought, well, what was going on in his personal life while well, that all happened? And in Wikipedia, because you can find anything in Wikipedia, it said that his wife was diagno diagnosed with cancer that year and that he just divorced her and kept on. Yeah, super sad story. And I thought, boy, everybody has a default reaction when they encounter suffering, right? We all have a default. What was this guy's default? I don't mean to, to lambast him for it. I'm just saying we all have this, right? My default is very similar to his. I work harder. I push in harder. I think I can do it. I'll just go for it. Roll up your sleeves. We're going to get through this. Push. It would be helpful to even have a conversation with your spouse and say, what's my default when hard things hit? Maybe that's my assignment for you in this message. Talk to your spouse. What's my default? It's a hard question to ask because it's going to reveal something about your character. But it's an important conversation to have with a spouse or a friend. And you know what? We don't naturally have as our default pulling back the curtain and seeing Satan. And we don't, because of the culture that we live in, and we don't naturally have as a default running to the cross and reviewing the benefits of the cross so we can keep on keeping on. Usually it's something like that baseball player, right? It's just the nature of who we are. My prayer for you is that each one of you and this church as a whole can have as a discipline looking at the benefits of the cross to drive them forward, to drive you forward when the bottom drops out, when the bomb drops. All right, that's your assignment. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for how your word prepares us for hard things. And you care so much about us. And you want us to, to continue on with the resolve, introducing others to Jesus and um, showing them what it means to follow, follow him. I thank you so much that the only reason, that the, the main reason this is worth it is that Jesus died in our place. He liberated us from sin. And that by placing our faith in him, we have life, we have liberation, we have freedom, and we have access to you to talk to you now. That's amazing. And it helps us keep on keeping on, God, maintaining our resolve when mission meets suffering. We pray that um, the Holy Spirit would intervene and open up that 3D image that we'd see it with our hearts and that we would keep our resolve. I pray that that would be our default when the bomb drops. In Jesus' name, amen.